0: Great to have you along for some more half-assed history this week on the Agenda. We're having a chat about Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay, the first people in history that we know to have conclusively reached the peak of Mount Everest. I want to get across some Kiwi history. We talked about that last week. And uh, arguably uh, the most famous Kiwi ever to have lived is Edmund Hillary, closely followed by uh, probably by Ernest Rutherford, I'd say, or maybe I'm completely wrong and it's just... Taika Waititi, Peter Jackson and Lord. maybe I'm way off, I don't know, whatever. In any case, we're doing Edmund Hillary, um, but it's not just Kiwi history today because the story of Edmund Hillary is so tightly wrapped up with the story of Tenzing Norgay that we're also getting across a bit of Indian Nepalese history as well. Norgay has unfortunately been sidelined a fair bit in the whole uh, conquering Mount Everest thing, although he is getting more and more recognition for it as time goes on, which is obviously a very good thing. And so today we're going to talk about the pair of them their backgrounds, the lead up to their 1953 expedition up Everest, and of course their eventual success as the first people to successfully climb the highest mountain on Earth. I'm keen to do some more uh, some more Kiwi history. There's there's definitely more coming, Kia ora to the uh, tens of thousands of Kiwis that are listening. Don't you worry, I've I've got you covered. I'll never admit this publicly. Publicly, I'll, I'll never put this on the record. But Australians are actually secretly quite fond of Kiwis. Obviously, we take the piss and we bully them like there's no tomorrow. Because one, it's our job as the uh, as the sort of older sibling in the relationship, and two because honestly they have the most ridiculous accents in the world they sound so silly they really do and it's so frustrating when people around the world think that we sound the same as them we absolutely do not as was expertly broken down by the flight of the concords have a listen to this your accents are just kind of similar our accents are completely different they're like where's the car and we're like where's the car it couldn't be couldn't be more different mate i I really i really don't know what people think anyway yes um as I say i would never actually admitted this as an Australian but we do love the Kiwis ridiculous accents and all and there will for sure be more uh, be more history from Aotearoa New Zealand coming in uh, in future episodes don't you worry I want to thank the Kiwis who got in touch after last week's episode uh, in particular alert listener Jordan Coxhead um, who sent through an absolutely terrific email? A great big long email full of uh, of information and resources for me to get my teeth into. Um, and as a result, I'll be bringing you some uh, some Kiwi history in the in the not too distant future. So cheers very much, Jordoaldson. Thanks for uh, thanks for getting in touch. And I also want to thank some other alert listeners who got in touch, Andre Delamere, Neil Richardson and Hannah, who all wrote in to suggest that I have a chat about Hillary, Norgay and Everest. So here it is. Hope you enjoy getting uh, getting into it with me. Uh, we're going to have a chat about the the backgrounds of these two blokes before we talk about their ascent up Everest. And then we'll talk about obviously the ascent itself and uh, and its consequences, the the ultimate legacies of these two blokes. A lot to get across today as ever, so let's set off from our base camp here and get underway with the story of Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay and the very first ascent of Mount Everest. Here we go. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to May 1914 when Tenzing Norgay was born, although that wasn't his birth name. He was born as Namgyal Wangdi. He was either born in a village called Tengbuche in northeastern Nepal or in the Kama Valley in Tibet. We're not 100% sure. Norgay himself claimed to have been born in Nepal, while his son wrote a book saying that his dad was actually born in Tibet. So who knows? Norgay didn't even know his own date of birth, uh, although he knew it was in late May. And so after summiting Everest, he actually started celebrating it on the 29th, on the date that he made it to the peak from, uh, from then on. Anyway, whenever he was born or wherever he was born, he grew up in Nepal and uh, his name was changed from Namgyal Wangdi to Tenzing Norgay on the advice of a, uh, on the advice of a monastic lama. He ran away from home a couple of times actually. He won, he ran to Kathmandu one time and then a second time to Darjeeling in India. And he ended up settling down a little bit in Darjeeling, settling in with the uh, with the Sherpas there at the age of 19 and eventually ending up uh, with Indian citizenship. Um, And and just to be clear, just to clear up a potential misunderstanding here, Sherpa, as... I incorrectly thought um, before I started recording, re- researching, and re- recording this episode, Sherpa isn't a job. It's a, it's a Tibetan ethnic group. Sherpa people tend to live in uh, eastern Nepal, uh, in Sikkim, in India, and in northern Bhutan. They're right up there in the mountains, and they tend to be very skilled mountaineers as a result, um, given where they live high up in the Himalayas. Uh, and so, these days, uh, when you hear the word Sherpa, you often think of, of if its meaning being something close to mountain porter, and and that has sort of been incorporated into the word it does kind of mean local himalayan mountaineering guide today there are sherpas who aren't sherpas if that makes sense but uh historically speaking uh sherpa the word sherpa actually refers to uh, to an ethnic group uh, from, from from around tibet anyway one of the reasons that uh, that Norgay settled in Darjeeling was because at the time it was one of the principal starting points for Himalayan expeditions. This afforded him and other Sherpas living there very good opportunities to work, being the expert mountaineers that they were. And Norgay very quickly showed himself to be a very bloody good at his job. In 1934 and 1935, British mountaineers were organising a reconnaissance expedition of Mount Everest to prepare for a later attempt on the peak in 1936, and Norgay was included in this team. Uh, as he was already developing a reputation as a very a very skilled mountaineer. Uh, and according to the bloke in charge of the 1935 expedition, Eric Shipton, it was both that and Norgay's charming smile that got him the job. And if you go online and have a look at this bloke, he was a very handsome fellow indeed. He did indeed have a, uh, a very charismatic smile. Anyway, Norgay, he worked with the British throughout the mid to late 1930s as part of many... Failed attempts to reach the top of Everest, more, more on them later. Uh, and then uh, into the 1940s, he actually worked as a valet and personal servant for shipmen living out west in what is today Pakistan. In 1947, however, he returned to Darjeeling and got back into mountaineering and was part of a few more unsuccessful attempts on Everest's peak. Uh, these expeditions, however, they were successful in that they discovered new routes that future expeditions could take, even though they didn't make it to the tops uh, to the top themselves. It wasn't a total loss and there was, uh, there was some very important information that was gained from them. So by the time we get to the successful 1953 expedition, Norgay has been up Everest six times, although never all the way to the top, obviously, and he was considered to be amongst the very best Sherpa mountaineers of the time. And it was in 1953 in Kathmandu that Norgay met the man who would travel all the way up to the highest peak on Earth with him, Edmund Hillary. So let's meet him ourselves as well. To do this, we go all the way back here. We go all the way back to 1919 to Auckland, the largest city in Aotearoa, New Zealand, where on the 20th of July, Edmund Hillary was born. When he was a young kid, his family moved to Tuakau, just uh, just south of Auckland. And he actually used to commute from there into Auckland to go to high school before his family finally moved back to Auckland in 1935. Apparently he was a quiet and a shy kid, Uh, wasn't very bookish. He actually gave up on schooling altogether in 1938 after his interest in exploration and hiking and mountaineering began to develop very strongly. Uh, He was also really into beekeeping. Of all things, as well, managed over a thousand hives with his brother and dad for a while there, but he heard the call of the mountains more strongly than anything else, and he bloody loved climbing them. In 1939, he ascended Mount Olivia, his uh, his first notable climb. These days, it's actually it's actually quite easy to get to the summit of Mount Olivia. Apparently, there are there are tracks and and whatnot, but back then, very hard yakka. Uh, Hillary managed it all the same. But then his mountaineering was put on hold, obviously with the outbreak of the Second World War. He joined the Royal New Zealand Air Force and flew around the Pacific as a navigator. But after the war, he returned to mountaineering, climbing Auraki Mount Cook, the highest mountain in New Zealand, at 3,724 metres. Aotearoa certainly has Australia beaten when it comes to uh, when it comes to the height of their mountains. Our tallest mountain is. Uh, barely a mosquito bite. It is uh, Mount Kosciuszko, 2,228 metres, not very tall at all. But then again, I mean, if we're talking about something like Auraki Mount Cook, it too doesn't stack up all that hugely against Mount Everest, which is 8,849 metres. So uh, I guess it doesn't matter which side of the, uh, of the Tasman you're on. We, uh, we are all losing this battle to uh, to Nepal. Anyway, Hillary obviously felt that there were yet more mountains to scale, higher peaks to conquer, and so as we move into the 1950s, Hillary, Hillary's mountaineering career went international. He fell in with Eric Shipton after travelling overseas, the same guy that Norgay had worked with and for, and ended up being part of several British expeditions in the Himalayas, including another reconnaissance mission to Everest, and then in 1952. Hillary was invited to take part in the British expedition to the top of Everest, slated for 1953, an invitation that he was absolutely thrilled to accept. Hillary, like Norgay, had earned himself a very positive reputation as a skilled mountaineer, and not only was he a very talented climber, everyone who met him would talk about his drive and ambition, his relentless, energetic passion for mountaineering. Um, However, Shipton wasn't the one that was put in charge of this expedition, despite his considerable experience in the Himalayas and with Everest in particular, something that Hillary in particular wasn't happy about. Instead, a bloke named John Hunt was appointed to lead this expedition. And this was a surprise to everyone, including Hunt himself, who hadn't expected it at all. And as I say, Hillary didn't think much of Hunt to begin with, but Hunt eventually won him over and, uh, and before long, the expedition got underway. It began with a training camp on the Welsh mountain Snowdonia before eventually heading over to the Himalayas in early 1953. Hillary arrived in Kathmandu, staying with his colleagues in the British Embassy as Kathmandu didn't have any hotels at the time. And it was there that Hillary met for the first time Tenzing Norgay, the leader of the 20 or so Sherpas that would be coming along as part of the expedition. Uh, Norgay, by the way, uh, was offered a bed in the embassy during this time, but the other Sherpas were given the floor of the embassy garage. Now, uh, they obviously weren't fans of this rather inequitable arrangement, as you can imagine, and they made their feelings known by getting up the next morning and pissing on the front of the embassy building in protest at this shameful treatment, so bloody good on them there. In any case, uh, with the expedition assembling in Kathmandu, we'll leave them to, to prepare for their journey for just a little bit, and uh, let's uh, let's have a quick chat about some of the other prior attempts to summit Everest before 1953. All of which were obviously unsuccessful, or maybe they weren't. But we'll we'll get into it. The history of attempting to climb Mount Everest goes back to 1921 when British adventurers George Mallory and Guy Bullock came across an approach to the mountain summit on its northern side. They did some recon, they gathered information on this potential approach, and this allowed another bloke, George Finch, to make it as high as 8,320 metres in 1922. The first person to climb above 8,000 metres, and more broadly, the highest any human had ever climbed at that point in history. More attempts were made in the 1920s, uh, resulting in the famous and untimely death of George Mallory. A very interesting story. We'll have to get across it properly at uh, at some point. Um, In addition to his climbing companion, Andrew Irvine. Debate still rages today as to whether they actually made it to the top. This is why at the beginning of the show I talked about uh, Hillary and Norgay being the first definitely conclusively proven people to have made it to the top of Everest um mallory and irvine may have they definitely got as as close as 240 vertical meters from the top but there's nothing conclusive that proves it one way or the other uh, and so the, the 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 question remains an open and rather controversial one in any case their deaths didn't put people off um despite the fact that the, that these two never returned mountaineers continued to attempt to conquer Mount Everest across the 1920s and 1930s, all unsuccessfully. Uh, There were expeditions in 1933, 1936, uh, in addition to those recon expeditions that I was talking about that weren't designed to reach the top. I uh, I talked about how Norgay was part of uh, of some of these expeditions, um, journeys with the aim of scouting out potential new routes and approaches up the mountain. And this was particularly necessary from 1950 onwards when China invaded Tibet and closed the border. This meant that expeditions had to approach the summit from the southeast, not from the north, as people like like Mallory had done. But this southeastern route um, actually ended up becoming the uh, the, the normal or the standard route for mountaineers to take. It still is today. Uh, And into the 1950s, it was this route that people like the British were investigating as a way to the top. A group of Swiss got involved at one stage in 1952, made an attempt at the summit. Norgay was part of that expedition, and they made it as high as 8,595 metres, a record-setting attempt, but still short of the summit. And this brings us now to 1953, with Norgay being brought on the latest British expedition thanks to his immense experience at Everest, and Hillary also taking part in it due to his reputation as a very, very skilled and driven mountaineer. So, Let's get to it here and let's talk about this 1953 British expedition, starting with the relationship between these two men. There were 400 people in total involved in this expedition, uh, most of them porters that would be helping to move 4,500 kilograms of equipment and supplies up to various points along the mountain where camps would then be set up. But the main two, the headline act, Hillary and Norgay, the blokes who actually made it, they were 33 and 39 years old, respectively, when they met. They were selected by Hunt as the second of two teams that would, uh, that would attempt to make it all the way to the top, and they were broadly considered to be the strongest and, uh, and most skilled climbers of anyone who was being brought along on this expedition. Now, as a result of the fact that they had been paired together, Hillary made a concerted effort to get to know Norgay and, uh, and, t- and to build a, a, a working relationship with him. Here's what he himself wrote about Norgay years after their first meeting. (coughs) I was eager to meet Tenzing Norgay. His reputation had been most impressive even before his two great efforts with the Swiss expedition. Tenzing really looked the part. Larger than most chirpers, he was very strong and active. His flashing smile was irresistible, and he was incredibly patient with all our questions and requests. His success in the past had given him great physical confidence. One message came through, however, in a very positive fashion. Tenzing had substantially greater personal ambition than any Sherpa I had met. The two men seemed to get on very well. Uh, They established a positive working relationship very early on as the expedition got underway and set off from Kathmandu. And the first step for not just them but the expedition as a whole, was to establish a base camp, which was done at an altitude of 5,455 metres in mid-April 1953. And from there, the expedition began to move up the mountain, slowly moving supplies and equipment up and establishing other camps. These camps were set up at various intervals, snaking their way up the route that was being taken towards the, uh, towards the summit, and ultimately resulting in around nine camps being spread across the route towards the top. Reaching and setting up each camp took several days, and uh, so it wasn't until late May that actual attempts on the summit could be made. You couldn't go from base camp to the summit in one go. The reasons that these camps were set up was to get the climbing teams as high as possible to begin with so they could get to the summit and safely back to a camp in, in, a, in a very short amount of time. The final camp was set up at a place called South Col. A, a little valley on the ridge of the mountain at 7,906 metres. Climbers still use South Coal today as their final camp before, uh, before ascending to the summit. And it was from there that the climbing teams that Hunted appointed would set off and make their attempt at the very last leg of the journey, make their attempt to reach the summit. And so with everything in readiness on the 26th of May 1953, the first climbing pair set off from South Coal, Tom Bordelon and Charles Evans equipped with experimental oxygen equipment that was designed to aid them in getting to the top. However, it did not. While this equipment worked, Bordelon and Evans climbed at a very rapid clip indeed. They were going like bloody greyhounds, as quick as anything. But then their equipment started malfunctioning and kept malfunctioning, meaning that they had to stop and fix it up before setting off again, which cost them precious time and energy. And eventually, Evan's equipment broke altogether, and that was effectively that for their attempt on the peak. At that altitude, the air is just so thin that breathing becomes extremely difficult uh, because there isn't, there just isn't enough oxygen in the in the air to keep you going, and that's what happened to Evans. the uh, The pair did make it to Everest South Summit by one p.m., which at eight thousand seven hundred and forty nine meters was the highest climb any human had ever achieved at the time. But 20 minutes later, they gave up. They realised that they couldn't manage the further 100-metre climb to the summit. The poor bastards were exhausted. Evans couldn't breathe properly, and, and they knew they were running out of time. They didn't have time to to make it up to the top and then get back before nightfall. And, and the last thing that you want is to be stuck in, in the open overnight. It's more, more or less a death sentence. So Bordelon and Evans, with their, their brand-new altitude record, which they would not hold for very long, they turned around and they descended back down to South Col, defeated by Everest, the, uh, the first climbing pair unable to make it to the peak. And so now it was Hillary and Norgay's turn. Bad conditions on the 27th delayed them from leaving. Uh, they left on the 28th, uh, and even then they didn't go all the way uh, to the peak from South Col. Instead, they climbed up to the 8,500 metre mark with the assistance of three others. And they set up a tent in which to stay the night while the other three headed back down. After waking on the morning of the 29th, Hillary found that his climbing boots had frozen solid overnight. It took him two hours to thaw them out on a stove, which is uh, a very amusing thing to think about. Oh, bloody sorry, Tenzing, mate. I, I can't climb up just yet. I've, I've, I have to, you know, I have to cook my boots. Anyway, once the pair was ready to go, they hefted their 14 kilogram packs onto their backs they strapped on their non-experimental and fully functional ox- oxygen equipment and they began the final stage of the ascent. They made it to the south summit uh, like, the, uh, like the previous pair had and then pressed onwards, meeting the very last obstacle that separated them from the mountain's peak, a 12-metre rock face that became known as Hillary Step with a 2,400-metre drop to the left And a 3,000 metre drop to the right. An extremely perilous obstacle to overcome. I I don't mind heights too much, but uh, I would say that having a multi-kilometre drop on either side of me would, uh, would probably be enough to put me off. Um, not that I'll actually ever have the chance to experience Hillary's uh, Hillary Step as Hillary and, uh, and Norgay did it's not there anymore um, not as it was for Hillary and Norgay anyway after a 2015 earthquake uh, the the step was destroyed it, this earthquake changed the topography of the mountain and caused a, a bunch of avalanches as well that that killed a lot of people it was uh, it was it was very unfortunate indeed anyway Back in 1953, uh, Hillary Step was the the final the final hurdle for these two to overcome. And uh, rather than me trying to tell you what this last obstacle was like to to get past, we can actually turn to Hillary himself and have him tell us in his words uh, what this experience was like. Here's what he wrote. <clears throat> After an hour's steady going, we reached the foot of the most formidable-looking problem on the ridge, a rock step some 40 feet high. We had known of the existence of this step from aerial photographs and had also seen it through our binoculars from Tengbuche. We realised that at this altitude, it might well spell the difference between success and failure. The rock itself, smooth and almost holdless, Might have been an interesting Sunday afternoon problem for a group of expert rock climbers in the Lake District, but here it was a barrier beyond our feeble strength to overcome. I could see no way of turning it on the steep rock bluff on the west, but fortunately another possibility of tackling it still remained. On its east side was another great cornice, an overhang of snow, frozen solid. And running up the full 40 feet of the step was a narrow crack between the cornice and the rock. Leaving Tenzing to belay me as best he could, I jammed my way into this crack. Then, kicking backwards with my crampons, I sank their spikes deep into the frozen snow behind me and levered myself off the ground. Taking advantage of every little rock hold and all the force of knee, shoulder and arms I could muster, I literally cramponed backwards up the crack with a fervent prayer that the cornice would remain attached to the rock. Despite the considerable effort involved, my progress, although slow, was steady, and as Tenzing paid out the rope, I inched my way upwards until I could finally reach over the top of the rock and drag myself out of the crack onto a wide ledge. For a few moments... I lay regaining my breath and for the first time really felt the fierce determination that nothing now could stop us from reaching the top. I took a firm stand on the ledge and signaled to Tenzing to come on up. As I heaved hard on the rope, Tenzing wriggled his way up the crack and finally collapsed, exhausted at the top. And now, finally, with this last obstacle behind them, Hillary and Norgay had a clear and very straightforward climb the rest of the way to the summit. They arrived at the peak of Mount Everest, the first people ever to do so, at 11.30am on the 29th of May, 1953, standing on top of the world. 8,849 metres above sea level, these two men were the very first to stand astride the highest peak on the face of the planet. Hillary took the famous picture of Norgay holding his ice axe aloft. You can go online and, and, and look at this picture. Norgay offered to take Hillary's picture uh, on the peak as well, but uh, Hillary declined. And so there is no picture of him at the top of Mount Everest. They did take other pictures, um, looking back down the mountain to prove conclusively that they had made it, but as I say, no picture of Hillary at the top, just the picture of Norgay. Anyway, the two men then buried, of all things, some lollies as well as a small cross, a little, a little treasure trove for, for future climbers to find. And then after just 15 minutes on the peak, they turned back around and started to head back down. They'd done it. They had conquered Everest and now all that remained was to return safely and tell their story. A feat that was actually made a little more difficult than they would have liked as drifting snow had covered up the tracks that they'd made on the way up so they, they couldn't just retrace their steps. But all the same, they made it. Meeting their colleague George Lowe, just above South Cole, he had climbed up some way and brought them some hot soup to warm them up. And uh, Hillary's first words to him uh, when they when they met were, Well, George, we knocked the bastard off. After Hillary and Norgay reached South Cole, news of their success was quickly sent back down the mountain by messenger runners who telegraphed a coded message to the British embassy in Kathmandu, who then sent it on to London, and from there, the rest of the world. Everest had been conquered, and the men who did it were Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay. Although... As you can probably guess, only one of these men received the accolades, Hillary. As a Kiwi of British extraction, he returned to Kathmandu to discover that he'd been knighted, along with John Hunt, the the leader of the whole expedition. But Norgay, on the other hand, he didn't get a fancy title or anything of the sort. In fact, it wasn't until July that Queen Elizabeth II started even thinking about acknowledging him as one of the two men to have conquered Everest. And even then, he only got a medal. I did come across some stories that might offer other explanations as to why Norgay didn't get knighted, which are are interesting, and and they might be true. I'm I'm, I'm not sure about this. It's possible that the Indian Prime Minister, uh, a bloke named Jawaharlal Nehru, denied permission for Norgay to receive a knighthood. British and Indian relations uh, weren't at their best in the 1950s. You can hear more about that in episodes 219 and 220, Mahatma Gandhi um uh, also i read a suggestion that uh, norgay was actually ineligible for a knighthood in the first place as he wasn't a british subject um which i guess hillary was as a kiwi i'm i'm really not sure it may have been political it may have been legal or it may have just been bigotry or a combination of all three i'm not sure but norgay didn't receive the recognition and accolades that hillary did for being one of the first people up everest Happily, today, a lot more attention is given to him, as is only fair, um, but that's, again, only happened in more recent years. Previously, Hillary was the one in the limelight, which I will say is not his fault. Um, I do want to point that out. Hillary was very consistent in crediting not just Norgay, but everyone else on the expedition with its successors. Um he he certainly wasn't a glory hound by by any measure. He didn't he didn't hog the limelight. Even Hunt, the bloke who was in charge, he was very eager to credit Norgay and his team of Sherpas for their critical contributions that underpinned the entire expedition. However, unfortunately, due to I guess the prevailing attitudes of the time, um, the the Nepalese Indian fella didn't get the same credit and adulation as Hillary and all of the all the British people on the trip. Although, thankfully, um, this actually didn't come between Hillary and Norgay. They remained lifelong friends, as you'd hope, after they had been through something so monumental together. As for their careers after Everest, well, they had all sorts of adventures, although uh, they, they never worked together again. Uh, their lives Their lives took very different paths. Norgay remained in the Himalayas. He became the director of a mountaineering training institute in Darjeeling and kept going up and down the mountains in the Himalayas for much of the rest of his life, although he never went up Everest again. Once seem, once seems to have been quite enough for him. Uh, but nonetheless, he remained a keen mountaineer. In uh, 1978, he founded a company, Tenzing Norgay Adventures, uh, which takes guided treks up the Himalayas across Nepal, Sikkim and Bhutan. Even to this day, it's still around. It's run by his son, Jamling Tenzing Norgay, uh, who himself, like his father, reached the summit of Everest in, in 1996. Norgé's legacy has increased as time has gone on and as more and more people realise the true nature of his role in this enormous milestone. And uh, he ended up receiving and collecting a, a ton of medals for himself, never a knighthood, um, and much more recently has had mountains named after him, both here on Earth and on Pluto, of all places, which is pretty sick. He's got an entire mountain range named, uh, named after him out on uh, out on Pluto. Anyway, on the other hand, Hillary. For his part, he he went all around the world on his post Everest adventures, and uh, I do mean that quite literally. In 1958, he travelled overland to the South Pole, part of a group of people who were the first to do so since Roald Amundsen and Robert Falcon Scott had back in 1911 and 1912. Episode two, uh, maybe maybe don't get across it. Those uh, those old, those old episodes aren't great. Uh, but years later, in 1985, he flew to the North Pole with. You will honestly, you will never guess who he flew to the North Pole with. He flew there with Neil Armstrong. Of all people, mate, the first man on the moon, episode 150. Do get across that one. That one's a cracker. Um, so, yes, Armstrong and Hillary flew to the North Pole together. And this made Hillary the first person in history to not just to climb Mount Everest, but the first person to have climbed Mount Everest and to have visited both poles. What is going on with this bloke and going to the coldest bloody places on Earth? Um, interestingly, uh, this achievement kicked off what's known as the three poles challenge, which even today is uh, is attempted by adventurers and thrill seekers who were bonkers enough to give it a go. Uh, Armstrong, on the other hand, he he didn't establish the um, what would you call it the uh, go to the North Pole and also the Moon challenge. Uh, that one that one wouldn't be quite as achievable, I wouldn't think. Anyway, Hillary also traipsed up and down the Himalayas plenty of times in the 50s and 60s, uh, including, interestingly, on expeditions that earnestly and very seriously were searching for yetis. Um, they, uh, they didn't find any. Sorry to, uh, sorry to spoil that for you there. But he also did some very important and meaningful community work, both uh, in the Himalayas and in his home country of Aotearoa, New Zealand helping to build schools and hospitals for for Sherpas in the Himalayas and establishing outdoor education centres back in New Zealand. He was was held in very high regard, both back in Aotearoa and throughout the world. All sorts of stuff is named after him, from schools to Antarctic coastlines. And he's even on Kiwi money, he's on The Five. Um, Although, interestingly... If you ever get your hands on a a, uh, a Kiwi $5 note, have a look. You'll see that there is a mountain in the background. And you might think, oh, of course, well, it's going to be Mount Everest, isn't it? Because that's what he's famous for climbing. No, it is not Mount Everest on the the Kiwi $5 note. Hillary himself insisted that the mountain depicted on on his banknote be Aoraki Mount Cook. Instead, one of his first major mountaineering achievements in his home nation, rather than the one that he's most famous for. In later years, uh, Hillary also had a a political career. He was appointed as the New Zealand High Commissioner to India, the High Commissioner to Bangladesh and Ambassador to Nepal. He remained very politically active throughout much of his later life, Uh, in addition to social and environmental work. He also staunchly campaigned in support of pro-choice reform. Honestly, from everything that I've found out about Edmund Hillary, he seems to have been just a great bloke. Um, Sadly, neither he nor Tenzing Norgay are with us anymore. Norgay died in 1986 at the age of 71 or 72, while Hillary died in 2008 when he was 88 years old. Today, however, hundreds of people a year follow in their footsteps and climb the highest peak on Earth, ascending to the summit of Mount Everest. Uh, There's one fella, uh, Kami Rita Sherpa, he's been up there 28 times so far and he doesn't seem to be slowing down anytime soon either. Uh, But the climb's a little different these days. Ropes and ladders have been set up by Sherpas to make the climb a lot easier than it used to be. But all the same, it is still a very dangerous thing to do and plenty of people have died on the mountain. And in many cases, their corpses have been left there, frozen and preserved. They become Grim landmarks for future climbers, around 200 of them dotting the sides of Everest, a reminder of how unforgiving the mountain can be. For instance, there's the famous corpse known as Green Boots, a corpse on the northeast ridge whose bright green boots are very conspicuous and uh, mean that this corpse is now used as a navigation aid by climbers. It's used as a landmark. Uh, or alternatively, alternatively, there is the Rainbow Valley, which sounds very sounds lovely, to be honest. Um, it's an area just underneath the peak, uh, but it is named Rainbow Valley because it is strewn with corpses dressed in brightly coloured mountaineering clothing. This year alone, 2023, 17 people have died on Mount Everest. It is still a very, very bloody dangerous thing to do. And as I say, the mountain, it's changed. It is very different to how it was in Hillary and Norgay's time. Not just the, the ropes and the ladders, there are now often queues to get to the peak. For one, you can you can go online and see pictures of people lining up, waiting their turn for the summit. But if you really want to get sad, have a look at the pictures of the rubbish and the litter that climbers have left behind on the mountainside. Tourism really has changed Mount Everest and, uh, and not necessarily for the better, but that's another story. There's one final thing that I want to address before we wrap up today's episode, a question that is probably burning in your mind, a question that Hillary and Norgay avoided answering for some time after returning from their voyage to the top of Mount Everest. And that question was, of course, of the two of them, who actually got up there first? Everyone wanted to know back then, just as, probably, just as much as you want to know now. And at first, Hillary and Norgay, they deflected these questions. They ran interference with classic lines such as, oh, it was a team effort, or, you know, we did it together, and and that sort of thing. But then, eventually, Norgay revealed in his 1955 autobiography that it had indeed been Hillary. Here's what he wrote. A little below the summit, Hillary and I stopped. I was not thinking of first and second. I did not say to myself, there is a golden apple up there. I will push Hillary aside and run for it. We went on slowly, steadily, and then we were there. Hillary stepped up first, and I stepped up after him. Now the truth is told, and I am ready to be judged by it. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay. Uh, the story of, as I mentioned, probably history's most famous uh, most famous Kiwi and probably history's most famous <laughs> Nepalese Indian as well. So uh, I do hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we'll be getting into some more Kiwi history for certain in the not-too-distant future. And hey, look, maybe I should be having a look into some Nepalese and Indian history as, as well and, and getting across that too. Anyway going to close out the show with all the boring housekeeping stuff uh, that we do of course every week halfhousehistory.net that's where you can find the contact form and get in touch with me if uh, you want to do the same as uh, as Jordan Coxhead and send through a bunch of resources and information for me to have a look at, or if you want to just send through a topic suggestion uh, like Andre Delamere, Neil Richardson, and Hannah did. I'd love to hear from you. It's it's so excellent to get so many uh, emails from from listeners every day. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not able to reply to most of them. I do apologise again. It's just it's just a question of how many I get, but I read every single one and I appreciate all the feedback uh, that I get from uh, from listeners as well so do get in touch do write in and let me know what your thoughts are and if there is something that I should be getting across uh, if you want to support the show there are a range of ways that you in which you can do this of course uh, you can buy some merch uh, at the merch shop just follow the links uh, from halfhousehistory.net and also uh, if you'd like you can support the show on patreon doing so will unlock a bunch of uh, of secret uh, bonus exclusive behind the scenes stuff uncut uh, uncut episodes show notes uh, exclusive Patreon only merch of course as well and ad-free listening uh, guaranteed at any uh, any Patreon tier that you sign up at, at. So uh, get across that if you feel like it. Uh, but otherwise the best way to support the show of course is just by spreading the good word. We have had a huge influx of new listeners recently. Welcome, by all means welcome if you're uh, if you're someone who's joining us for the first time this week. Maybe you've uh, stumbled across the show via uh the uh, the Spotify radar program once again thanks to Spotify for having me on board for that it really is excellent to have you along hopefully you'll stick around over 275 episodes for you to uh to, for you to get stuck into so uh I hope the back catalog treats you well Although, again once again the uh, the early episodes are not so great anyway uh one of course say thank you as well to all of the old and returning listeners the backbone of this show the stalwart and reliable old guard who turn up every week for their dose of uh, of weekly historical nonsense the show would not be what it is without you so uh, thank you very very much for uh, for coming back and thank you very very much for, of course for telling your friends telling your enemies and telling people about whom you feel largely ambivalent We'll be back next week with more nonsense, of course, but until then, leaving you with a question posed on Reddit. This one comes to us from... Whoa, should have... mm, Should have read this name heading into... Whoa, boy. This one comes to us from Raw Bieber, who asks, If warm air rises, why isn't Mount Everest the hottest place on Earth?